Hey there, it's Paula, and welcome back to Journeys of Faith. I'm just going to put it out there. This week's guest is a little polarizing, but Glenn Beck tells me that he has done some serious soul searching. He says you can't be despised by half the country and not be affected in some capacity. For Glenn, it really comes back to the moment that he cried out for mercy. It's also a moment that forced him to realize that mercy was something he's been giving out too seldom. We went to Dallas to his studios to do this interview, and if you don't know, Glenn Beck is a Mormon, a faith that he once maligned and a faith that he says nobody really knows nor has any idea about. He found his faith after nearly destroying his life with drugs, alcohol, even suicidal tendencies. In this episode, we're going to explore Glenn's self-described arrogance, what the Church of Latter-day Saints is really about. For instance, are they Christians? And why on Saturdays, you'll find Glenn back in his family cleaning bathrooms. Here's Glenn Beck in his words on this week's edition of Journeys of Faith. We're ready. Yes. Well, this is your territory. Can you please say quiet on the set? Quiet! <laughs> on the set. <laughs> Glenn Beck. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for joining the podcast and for loaning me the studio space. Because yeah, yeah. we're, we're recording this in your Dallas studios. Yes. Beautiful, by the way. I like what you've done Thank with you. the place. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And how long ago did you move down to Texas? <sighs> six years, maybe. Mm-hmm. Six years ago. You wanted to just slow down a little bit. Yeah, I was, uh, several reasons. Um, you know, I it was not a pleasant experience up in New York um, for, for me or my family mainly. Um, and... Um, uh, and I also was not at the top of my health and needed to kind of get out and slow down. You were diagnosed with macular dystrophy, yes. correct? Yeah. About five years ago? Yeah. And then a couple of other autoimmune disorders. Yeah. And I don't know if we've ever really found, you know, it's one of those things that they're constantly chasing. Um, we found a whole bunch of uh, uh, different things, um, but none of them is under a big umbrella mm-hmm. um but it has caused me um uh real um fatigue all the time and um and pain what kind of pain um is it acute or is it chronic no it's it's um it's kind of turned into chronic mm. uh all the time pretty much um but you know we all have we all have our own thing mm mm-hmm. mhm with the macular dystrophy, there's a chance that you might lose your vision. Yeah, you know, my, my doctor said, um, okay, I want, I want you to know uh, you have macular dystrophy. And I said, okay, what does that mean exactly? And he said, well, it could mean you could be blind in a year or you could have sight for the rest of your life. Gee, like, gee, thanks. And I'm paying you a thousand dollars. I knew that coming in. <laughs> you know, what do I, what do I need you for? Right. Um, so it is, I, I have it checked all the time, but it, mm-hmm. it's stayed at bay. I, I, I had a, a fantastic experience with Billy Graham. Uh, I went to Billy Graham's house and, uh, uh, we had this amazing conversation and, um, we, I was only supposed to be there for about a half an hour, and I think we spent the whole afternoon. We were probably five hours together. And uh, at one point he said, may I ask you a question? I said, yes. He said, 
do you like P.F. Chang's? <laughs> I said, where did um, that come from? I know. He said, I'm hungry. Can we order out? So we sat around a table and had P.F. Chang's and he's, he was hard of hearing. And uh, so I was sitting, unfortunately, on the bad side of his hearing. And somebody else, a member of the family, was sitting on the other side. And uh, he said, oh, I have, I have just been diagnosed with macular dystrophy. And he wasn't looking at me. And I said, what? That's weird. Me too. And he then, without missing a beat, he said, and I went in for one of the treatments and they stuck a needle directly in my eye. It was the most excruciating. And he's just going on and I'm just white. And <laughs> the guy on the other side said, dad, 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 what? Glenn has that too. And <laughs> He looks at me and he said, oh, it's no big deal. <laughs> right after he just... Right after excru- the yes, most excruciating experience. that someone stuck a needle yeah. in his eye. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I think he's... I can't think of anybody greater that I've met. Um, that's high praise. Yeah. He was... A, that's what everyone says. He was just an extraordinary man. And you look at who he was rubbing elbows with. It didn't matter... The affiliation, the political party. No, he was in it didn't the matter. I, I'm, I'm, you know, a Latter Day Saint, mm-hmm. um, and you know, a lot of people have a problem with that, and he was not one of them. And um, uh, he said to me, um, we were talking about some some things, and and he said, "How do you know that?" And I said, well, I, "I think." I think I know it because of prayer. And um, somebody said, um, "Well, well, you know that you know that he's a Mormon." Kind of throwing me under the bus. Mm-hmm. And he just turned and glared at that individual, and then he looked at me and he said, "Tell me about your relationship with Christ." And I did, and he had tears running down his eyes. And at the end, he grabbed my hand, and then he looked at that other individual and said, he sure sounds Christian to me. Wow. Um, he wasn't going to get caught up on all of the nuances. He didn't, no. He, he, and he had such strength. I saw him about a year before he died. And um, when I first met him, um, he had called me out of the blue. I was standing in my lobby of my offices in New York. And I had just said to one of the guys that was in my company, I have to speak to Billy Graham. I have to talk to Billy Graham. And he said, why don't you call him? I said, yeah, well I do. I I have several times. Mm -hmm. Billy Graham's not taking my call right now. Thank you. And, um, and that day Billy Graham's office called me out of the blue. And he said, Billy would like to meet with you Sunday. Can you come to his house? He just wanted to say hi. Um, but I had an agenda. I knew what I had to talk to him about. And What was your agenda? Um, I, I wanted to talk to him about some things that I had, uh, mistakes that I had made and directions that I thought I had to go. I, was, I went to tell him that I was going to leave Fox. Mm. And I really wanted his, his counsel on that. And... Um, so I went in and uh, I said, how can I help you? And he said, I just wanted to say hi. 
And, uh, and uh, so we just chatted for a while and I said, well, I've been wanting to talk to you for quite some time now. And I said, uh, cause I think you have an answer you can help me with. And he immediately started to cry and he said, please forgive me. And I said, for what? And he said, I didn't know I would have been praying and fasting to be able to help you. Please forgive me. He was just this giant. Mm-hmm. Really meant a lot to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you just mentioned his take on your Mormon faith, and you've been a Mormon part of the church since 1999. Is that correct? Yeah. So I want to talk to you about how you got there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so going back to your childhood, and I, there's so much about your story I didn't really know, but um, you grew up um, Catholic. You're, you're Catholic, you're, but your mom died when you were young. Mm-hmm. And your brother-in-law died as well. Both of them committed suicide. Yeah, my brother-in-law. I imagine seeing two people that you love dearly take their own lives. That's got to affect your worldview. Yeah, um, especially your mom. Mm-hmm. You know, at I think I was 15, 13 or 15. I can't remember. I wrote a book about it, but it was fictionalized. Now I can't remember which mm-hmm. is which. But In your teens. Yeah, yeah, I was in my teens. And... um uh, you get to a place to where you think, well, that's just in our blood. That's just, that's the way it works in our family. Suicide? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to repeat her mistakes. And, um, and I, you know, I, I suffer from, um, uh, depression and I haven't, thank God, in a, in a long time. But uh, in my youth, I went through real bouts of clinical depression. And I really thought I was going to repeat her life. And it it messes with you, you know. Um, my, you kind of think this is what I'm destined to do. I'm destined to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I'm fortunate I was too much of a coward. Um, but I, I strangely, I would pray. Help me do this, Lord. Help me do this. Help me. Help, help me. You would say, God, help me help take me. my life? I can't. I can't take it anymore. I, I, I am. I'm, I've screwed everything up. I, I, I don't know what to do. People would be better without me. Help me. I don't have the courage. There was a bridge abutment in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I lived in Louisville for a while. And every day I'd go to work and I would pray please help me pull this car into that bridge abutment. And I would pray every day to work and from work. You were thinking about taking your life on a daily basis. Yeah, for about eight months, yeah. How old were yeah. you at that point? 21, mm-hmm. probably. I read a quote from you, and this is from your childhood. I don't have the exact time, but you said, I felt broken. I felt poisoned. I really believed if you came in contact with me, you couldn't help but become sick yourself. Yeah. What do you remember about that, that boy? Um, that I wasn't the same on the outside that I was on the inside. Um, I, I, I never felt, uh, like me until late in my thirties. Mm-hmm. I felt I was 
um, I, I could calculate and, and, and navigate, but it was never me and it was never authentic, mm. you know? Um, and, and constantly medicated, self-medicated constantly. Drugs, always. alcohol. Always. Yeah. Um, started drinking young, started smoking pot young, smoked pot every day of my life from probably 15 years old to 30. So 15 years straight. Straight. Every, every day. Every single day. Um, got to a point in my 30s when I was running uh, a few stations for Clear Channel, um, iHeartMedia, and um, uh, I was I, hammered. But never at work. Alcoholics are hammered at work. Mm-hmm. I'd drink at five. As long as I, as long as that clock's at five o'clock, well, normal people drink at five. Mm-hmm. And so I would just hold on every day until, I mean, I would literally be someplace that had alcohol at five and I would literally watch the second hand tick to 12. And when it did, I was okay. Yeah. You justified it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, um, high, high functioning alcoholic. You were not in a good place. No, no, that was, um, when I was, um, I had, I had stopped drinking and my 30th birthday. I remember it. I remember when it, when the, when it turned to midnight and I was laying in bed and I was watching the, the red, remember those old red led alarm clocks. And if you watch them, maybe it's because I was drinking all the time, but the, the numbers would kind of float. They kind of jump a little mm-hmm. bit. And I remember watching it and it flipped to midnight and I heard a voice in my head. Your life is about to change. And, um, I knew what that meant. I knew that I had to get clean and sober and I tried really hard. I tried for three years and I, I, I never broke. Um, but man, I couldn't hold on to it. I mean, I was just you were sober for three years. Yeah. And I was just white knuckling it. Mm. Um, but I had so much inside of me that I had never said, I mean, I never talked to my, my then wife had no idea. My mom committed suicide. My, my brothers and sisters, we never talked about it. My father, we never talked about it. Really? Um, when my mom died, I moved in with my dad and he was married to another woman and she wanted no discussion of anything about our past life in the house. When did you, do you think that kind of set your mom's suicide, set you on this downward spiral? It's the only way you knew how to cope. Yeah, I think so. That and, and it set me on my career path as well because I just threw everything into success. I thought happiness would come with success and wealth. And by the time I was, you know, 25, I was making a quarter of a million dollars a year mm-hmm. when that was real money back then. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still real money, but mm-hmm. back in the 80s, that was a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, every time I would you know, gain something else, I would, it would be empty and worthless. And I'd think, okay, well, it's the next thing. And so I just drove myself into where I finally had achieved enough uh, fame and wealth to realize that's bogus. It must be me. It's gotta be me. I'm just fundamentally poison. Mm. And, um, you obviously didn't love yourself. 
oh, I hated myself. But I, it's weird. I, I, I translated that as I hate people. I didn't hate me. I hated others. And uh, I was just this self-hating egomaniac um, and really an ugly person. I think in your book you said, I was a despicable human being. I once fired a guy for bringing me the wrong pen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I. Um, Why do you think you were so miserable? Until you realize who you really are, and until you face the things that are inside of you, um, and share them, there's, there's no way to heal. That poison just stays in you and it gets worse and worse. And your, your own brain, your system, uh, knows you better than, than you do, you know? And so your brain just, as you feed it negativity, it just continues to build on it and it creates illusions and monsters beyond recognition. Right. So by the time you were 30, that's really when you hit rock bottom. You lost your wife, mm-hmm. lost your job, mm-hmm. pretty much lost everything. Lost everything. Didn't have a friend. Didn't, I mean, just lost everything. And um, started this this spiritual journey. I mean, I grew up in a very strange family. I grew up with uh, mother who was Catholic, but didn't go to church, but insisted that we go. Um, she insisted that her children went. Yes. But insisted, she did not go. She did not go. Okay? okay. My father, um, had a very tough life growing up. He was, um, he ran away from a very abusive, uh, father and, uh, his, um, he ran away to Los Angeles when he was 15 and, uh, repeatedly raped as a boy and then totally disillusioned from religion. He got into a religion and that turned uh, on him in an ugly way. And so he just tried his whole life not to be his father. And um, when he was out in California back in the forties, he, he found this guy named Ernest Holmes who wrote this great book uh, it's called the science of mind. And, um, m- my dad always preached this at home and, and it, it's not a religion. It's the mechanics of God. Okay. It's how, how God works as you think, so shall you be. And, um, and it, it, he used to say it all, all these things all the time. And, and I was like, yeah, right, dad, right, dad, right, dad. But my dad, who I was not close to, um, my dad is actually the first step in healing because I said, dad, I, I got to get out of radio. He said, you've been in radio since you were, you knew at eight, you got mm-hmm. into radio when you were 13. You had your first paying job in radio at 13. 13. Yeah. And, uh, he said, uh, you've got to find a way to do it that, that appeals to you. What's important to you. And I said, well, just trying to find answers now. And um, uh, I called him one day and I said, you know, Dad, I've been thinking about it. And geez, my life has sucked. I've had this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. 
my father was so wise and he said, um, you're right. Boy, you're right. Now he's a baker. And he said, uh, you know, I have some bread in the oven. I got to go take it out. Can you just make a list of all those things that have happened to you? And then we call me tonight, will you? And I said, yeah, I will. And I'm like, finally, somebody's listening to poor me. <laughs> and uh, I sat there and I, I, I think I got to like the fourth on my list. And I realized, well, wait a minute. If that didn't happen, this wouldn't have happened. And if this didn't happen, that wouldn't have happened. And I saw that that there was no bad. It's how I interpreted all of those events. And uh, I called him right back and I said, there's no bread in the oven, is there? And he just laughed and he said, you're smarter than I thought you were. <laughs> and um, he said to me, he said, I want you to do something. He said, I want you to make a list. I want you to take a piece of paper and put it next to your bed. Put a line down the middle and just put positive, negative. I don't want you to judge. I don't want you to write down any specifics. I just want you to put a hash when every time you have a thought, you'll get up tomorrow morning. As mm -hmm. soon as that alarm goes off, the first thought, is it positive or negative? And just put a hash mark. And let's just look at that. Uh, he said, you're talking yourself into misery. I got to the first stoplight. It was about 530 in the morning. I've been up for about an hour and 15 minutes. And I had like 37 negatives and not a single positive. As you said, as a man thinketh, so he doeth. Correct. Mm -hmm. And my father taught me. And I, and I, this is a gospel according to Bill and now the gospel according to Glenn. But I think this is the most powerful thing in the universe. Uh, and God himself tells us when he's talking to Moses and the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. Well, we think that's, I'm not going to say GD. But I don't think that's what that means because that's not his name. In fact, his name, uh, you know, you'll say it's Yahweh, mm -hmm. but his name actually doesn't even have any value of uh, vowels. The Jewish people will tell you. Actually, they won't, but they will show you that it actually sounds like the wind. It is Yahweh. Okay? Uh -huh. That's how you say his name. It would be Y-H-W-H. Correct. Okay? Um, and it's the breath of heaven. We know that the word is God. God speaks it and it becomes. So don't take my name in vain. So my father said, don't take his name in vain because it has the power and the force of God behind it. Mm -hmm. Whatever you say after I am, it will create. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. So don't take my name in vain means... Don't say things that you don't want to create. Don't say, I am miserable. I am lonely. You put that into motion. Though. Correct. Mm -hmm. the, the, in the science of mind, it talks about how the brain does not, the mind doesn't judge good and bad. As I found out, there is no bad in the end. It's how you interpret it. Look at. What do you mean there is no bad in the end? You think there's good and evil? I do believe there is good and evil. But okay. it's how, for instance, man's search for meaning. Um, look at what he said. Look at, um, look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The guy, the guy was hung in the end. Okay? 
he 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 was a pacifist. He was a preacher. He tried to do everything he could for God. His letters in the Nazi concentration camps are well his 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 sermon on marriage that he had to write to his sister because he was in a concentration camp is so beautiful. It's what I gave my daughter for her her wedding day. It, it is it is unbelievably beautiful. He's writing it in a concentration camp. He is he is uh, hung, and the only reason why the executioner remembered him is because he thanked him for his kindness. Okay, right before he killed him, as he's walking up the stairs. He looks at the executioner and says, thank you for your kindness. Okay? Give me chills. There is no bad. It's how you interpret it. He, he wasn't worried about anything. He, he, that wasn't a bad thing to him. It just was. Now, I am so far away from that, but that's real faith. That's real faith. You know, that's, that's everything is going to be used for his good and glory. Mm-hmm. So I I destroyed my life. How many times have I destroyed my life? How many? <sighs> One, I think because in a way I was trying, you know what I mean? I was stupid, but I was trying. And I think one... While I was trying, the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, but he always takes the worst. And all of a sudden, I mean, we know this. Everybody knows this. You think back on something that you were like, please, God, don't let this happen. And it turns out to be something that you later go, wow, I am so glad he didn't mm-hmm. listen to me on that. Coming up, what Mormons believe about heaven and hell and the painful moment Glenn Beck cried for mercy. So when did things start to change for you? Uh, things mentally began to change um, at that moment of I am, but it took a long time. And then when I met my now wife, Tanya, mm-hmm. Uh, she is, she was, she's the best person I've ever met. Um, she's a lot like Billy Graham. She's just so, she is so peaceful. She likes PF Changs too. (laughs) Yes, she does. (laughs) Uh, but she's so peaceful and I lucked out. I, she thought I was going to be a garbage man when we met really. I mean, I, what did she see in you at the moment when when she met you? No idea. No idea. Um, our our i should say it's not our song it's the song that i always think of her and i think she hates it because she hates ray charles but i love the song uh a song for you Mm -hmm. and it starts out um i love you in a place where there is no space or time and um and and how i've played my whole life out in front of crowds but you see me, you see the man I hope to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what she saw in me is the man that I hoped to be. Mm-hmm. Things started turning around for you when you met your now wife, your second wife. Mm-hmm. 
How did you guys find the the church? How did you find the LDS? So the Latter Day she was she was just so great and gracious and and I honestly uh, I I told her at one point I'm stealing light from you. I really felt like I was a black <laughs> hole and I could just see the goodness coming off of her. There's that, that mentality again. Yeah. The poison. Yeah. That you were poisoned and poisoning yeah. everyone else around you. Right. And so, um, uh, she, and I told her that she said without even turning around, without missing a beat, she just said, you cannot steal that which is being given. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I need to marry this woman. Mm-hmm. And so I asked her to marry me and she said, uh, no, and I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, all this can be yours. Wait, what you- <laughs> <laughs> Look at this. Yeah. I mean, you could have a slice of this anytime you oh. want, which yikes. Uh, and she said, uh, no. And um, I said, how come? And she said, because we don't uh, have faith in common. We don't share God. And what was her faith? Uh, she was okay. Catholic. And, um, I said, and I had just gone to school, uh, for, uh, what's called early Christology. Okay. Took it at Yale. Cause if you're going to find God, you're going to find him at, <laughs> yes, at Yale. Definitely at the Ivy league school. And, uh, so, uh, I said, honey, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. And she said, well, uh, I know what won't work is a marriage without God in the center. And I said, but our, my, my younger kids, they know God. We talk about God all the time. I believe in God. I just, honestly, I don't believe in church. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, you come over on a Sunday, you've been to church and you first thing you say to me is, oh man, I got out in the parking lot and people were honking their horns. And I said, I watched HBO and I'm in a perfectly mm-hmm. fine mood. Mm-hmm. And, um, she said, your kids don't know about God. I said, yeah, they do. And I really believe this because we talked a lot about God, I thought. She's calling you out. She called me out. And uh, oh, the dumbest thing I've ever done. I thought, I'm going to prove you wrong. So I got the kids. We went out to dinner. I still have this. It's it's right by our dinner table. Still have it. And you're talking about your two daughters. Two from, younger daughters. Your two yep, younger daughters from, from a first marriage. marriage. Okay. And uh, I said, and Tanya was there. And I said, I took out my little pencil and paper. And I said, okay, kids, so what's the most important thing in our lives? I mean, who, who are we really? And uh, the first answer was. Uh, not uh, God. Not God. It was, <laughs> I believe it was uh, storytellers. And because we, we tell stories, mm. that's how I taught them history and. And I said, okay, no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, what are we really centered on? And uh, the next answer was artsy. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, no, kids, you don't understand. And it's not going vision. well. Right. <laughs> we got to artful, which I pointed out is probably a synonym for artsy. Uh, we got to number 12. Number 12. Oh my gosh. And I said, and I practically put my hands in a praying fashion and said, no kids, no. What is it that really drives us that's at the center of our family? 
Who are we? What do we base our lives on? And my youngest daughter said, oh, geez, I know. We're nonviolent. Oh, my gosh. You just proved her point. Oh, yeah. And I did it in front of her. There was no way to hide it. And she just looked at me like, really? Uh And so I looked at her. I said, okay, we'll go find a church. So we went to everything. We, we honestly went to a church. This was shocking. We honestly went to a church where the pastor behind the pulpit, with the cross and everything, behind the pulpit said in his sermon, Now, you all know that I don't believe in God, but if there is a God, I looked at Tony and I went, I think I need a church where the pastor believes in God. Yeah. I Did you know that you should put that on the door someplace? Oh Our pastor doesn't believe in God. Um, so we went to all different kinds of churches, um, all different religions. And uh, we went to a synagogue, which I loved. It's, mm-hmm. you know, Friday night, Saturday, you're in, you're out. I, you know, I don't speak a word of the language. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's not. I don't know. I just... I love the oral history. What they know of the Old Testament changes everything. Changes everything. Um, so finally, a friend of mine called, and he, he was Mormon. And uh, I had worked around... This is Pat Gray? Yeah. Okay. Who was on my show, now works for The Blaze. Right. And uh, he had moved away. We had been partners for a long, long time. Then we broke up for a while, and then... Uh, uh, about halfway through that, he called me up and he said, so I hear you're seeking truth. And I said, Pat, I know where you're going. (laughs) There is no way I am going to a Mormon church. No way. I said, you guys are all about power and control and all of this stuff. And he said, you don't know us at all. You've never sat in a single service You've never asked a question. I said, I know. He said, I just wanted to point out. Uh, he said, I thought you were actually turning over every stone. But if you're not really seeking and willing to look everywhere, that's up to you. And I was like, okay. And so I I went and I mean, I drove and I, honest to God, I said this. I said to my kids that were sitting in the back seat and I adjusted the mirror so I could see him. And I said, don't talk to anybody and don't drink anything. <laughs> and, and I said to Pat, I said, how long is it? Or I said, I said, what time is it? He says, nine o'clock, nine to noon. And I said, three hours, three hours, three hours. What do you, I said, if your God's not powerful enough to get it done in, in an, an hour, hour? <laughs> he's just not really God he needs to be efficient. here, <laughs> Right. It's three hours. And so we went in and, uh, you know, they greeted us and this guy who I, much to my shame, um, I labeled uh, the amazing Mr. Plastic Man because he was so happy to see me. Now, I'm a guy who hates everybody and I hate myself at this point and I'm like, really? He's like, we're just so happy you're here. And I'm like, I'll give it 10 minutes, buddy, and you'll be thrilled that I leave. Uh I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. And I thought, nobody's that happy. Stop it. And so we went in and we last the first hour, but Pat had called his friends and they all said, and he said, 
trap him. He's going to leave like 40 minutes in. So just keep him talking. Okay. And what do you do for the th- for three hours, though? You do an hour of service, like like a traditional traditional service. Okay, okay. with then, a preacher. Yeah, with a okay. N- um, no, not no. really. We don't. It's um, it's a lay church. Okay, and so you're called. I mean, like I could get the phone call, and they're like, "Hey, Glenn, and guess who's the bishop for the next five years?" What? No, 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 no. <laughs> so there's no payroll of the church, and so interesting. Everybody serves, so. Like on Saturdays, my family and I, we go in, we scrub toilets and we clean the church and vacuum, you know, the pews. We don't have a janitorial service. So, you know, that's what we do. And we all take different jobs and you're, you're called to serve. Okay. Who calls you? um, The bishop. And then the bishop is called by a stake president. The stake president is called by the 12 in Salt Lake. Okay. So you're in the service. It's three hours. Yeah, so the first hour is just that. The second hour um, is uh, what's called gospel doctrine, and you you go in deep discussion in class. And then the third one, we split male and female and kids. And so the women go into one class, men go into another class, which I thought was weird at first, until we started comparing notes, and we started we were taught the same things, but the discussion was different. And it was fascinating mm-hmm. to compare notes and go, Oh my gosh, that's the way you guys talked about it. Cause we talked about it this way. Yeah. There's a different interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we got on the first, first hour and I'm getting ready to leave. And I mean, I'm all these people are like, Hey, so how are, Hey, why don't you take your kids? They can go into primary. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We actually went to primary cause I was convinced they were going to hypnotize them or something. And after a while, the kids just loved it. And we were like, Oh, Okay, I guess you're not going to serve, you know, some sort of LSD brownies to them. And uh, we went in and in that gospel doctrine class, you could ask questions. And I had never, I'd never been in a church where you could raise your hand and say, excuse me, I don't think that makes sense. And so is that truly the, the, the format where you, you can question or oh, yeah, is it yeah. just discussion? It's a discussion, but you can question anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's and everybody, you don't go to an expert. You all have to dig in and find the answers. And, um, and so I looked at Tanya, I said, you can ask questions here. And she said, I said, honey, we are going to be in the parking lot in five minutes. <laughs> and uh, so I raised my hand and I said, can you help me out on something? Sure, sure. Where's Gandhi? And they said, what? And I said, where's Gandhi? Seemed like a nice guy. Seemed like peaceful guy. Really lived a great life actually liked Jesus, just didn't accept him as the savior, but he followed his principles. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus didn't wear pants. He didn't wear pants. They have to get along. Mm -hmm. Where's Gandhi? Expecting them to say he's in hell. And they explained that there is no hell. Hell is a separation from God. It's not a burning lake of fire. It is a separation from God. And, and, our chance to understand still goes on after our death. Okay. So it's it. 
eternal progression. We're not sitting on a cloud. It's eternal progression closer and closer to God. I, my biggest problem was I, I could not understand a God that would damn people to hell for picking the wrong school. Mm-hmm. If it was an honest, you know, if you really were searching and you were like, no, this is, I don't understand that faith. This is the one that works for me. I didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, I drove away and I said, we're, we'll continue to go until they say something that pisses your dad off. And that'll mm-hmm. probably be next week. Right. And um, we really dug into it. I mean, I was reading Mormon doctrine, the big, huge. Yeah. You you're know, not going to buy into something unless you research it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I tore it apart, just tore it apart. And the answers made sense to me. The the answers that counted for, you know, people are like, oh, so you believe in the golden plates and Joseph Smith? I don't know. I don't, I don't know how that happened. I don't know. I don't know. You know, non-Christians say, you believe that Jesus rose for the dead? Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Jesus, you God created the heavens and the earth. And you believe in the Big Bang? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What's essential to my salvation is that Jesus is the Christ. That he has laid out a plan for us that we should follow that plan. And that plan is he's going to judge us. So the, we should serve him. And the best way to serve him is to serve our fellow man. And within really a couple of months, after getting baptized and stuff, within a couple of months, I couldn't wait to talk to strangers. I couldn't wait to hear them I got yelled at by my program director because I was asking people, so what, what's, what's happening in your life? I wanted to, I all of a sudden was so fascinated and so in love with people coming from a different perspective and what they were going through. It was, I was completely changed, completely changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think that was all because of your faith? Yeah, I know it was from... Um, shedding all of the, you know, when I, I stood in the waters of baptism and if you're a Christian, you believe that, that, that act, if you're sincere is what takes away all of your mistakes. And boy, I needed that. I needed that. I How couldn't. long were you in the water? I was actually in the water, I think for about 10 minutes before, cause Pat baptized me. Mm-hmm. So I was in the water for about 10 minutes before he could get the words out because we were both crying. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in my head, I was saying to God, never do this. I was saying to God, you promise, you promise. There are very few people that need this as much as I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm begging you. And you promise if I do what you tell me to do, you will take all of this away from me. I warn you, don't ever say this. I warn you. I won't be the one to break the covenant. Oh my gosh. And I mean, the next day my life changed. Literally the next day my life changed. When you you prayed and you said, take all of this from me, what were you referencing when you said this? Firing the guy with a pen. um, Being just a lousy person, lousy husband, lousy dad, lousy boyfriend when I was younger, just, just, 
screwing everything up, being so self-centered and so driven by everything that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. You haven't felt the same since. I haven't. I was really trying my hardest. And um, I just, I, I, I have a hard time getting past uh, hindsight being 2020. I mean, you know, you know Google my name. And the things you've said, yeah. the mistakes you've made. Yeah. And but, I, I, but that's where you have to learn how to extend as much grace to yourself as you do to other people. It's hard when you're alone on that. It's hard when um, society does not want to lend that grace. It's hard when you're shouted down in, you know, walking with your children in a street. Um, it's hard when you have, I, I actually gave a speech in Nantucket about two years ago and I was in such pain and nobody had any idea. And I, it took everything in me to get up out of bed, get onto a plane and go to this to speak. And it was about healing and it was with a bunch of liberals and it was about people coming together and just being honest and they asked me to speak twice, so I opened the event, and then I closed the event. And when I opened it, I I just spilled my guts and, you know, asked for forgiveness and, and explained and then said what I believe. And, um, and, uh, and then that weekend, it, it just nonstop hammering, nonstop hammering in a church, uh, somebody uh, said, uh, I can't believe you have the guts to even walk into one of these places. I mean, it was just nonstop. And I, b- because of my pain on that Sunday morning, I was actually in the bathroom. Um, Your chronic pain from yeah, the autoimmune chronic, diseases. Yeah. Okay. And I was, I was on my knees in front of the sink in the bathroom and, and just, I can't, I just can't do it. I can't move. I can't go on. And my wife was there and she, you know, helped button my shirt and tie my shoes. And I went out and I went out on stage and I just said, mercy, mercy. I, I, I understand now the cry for mercy. And it is something that I have given too seldom. And it is the problem that I think we have in society. We, we seem to be on, have a sport of who are we going to destroy today? There is no mercy and there is no forgiveness. There's no redemption. This is not a, a, a biblical world we're living in now. Right. You seem to have, in just a couple of excerpts from your book, Addicted to Outrage, you say, I did and said ignorant things, and you've also you also say that I've spent a lot of time and effort the last few years admitting that I've been wrong. It just seems like there's a different, softer side to Glenn Beck than we've seen in years past. What do you attribute that to? You can't be hated by half the country and and not stop. My my intent was never to cause trouble. It was to open people's eyes. And so I thought if I am, if I'm entertaining, I can get people to watch 
And then if I back it up with facts, then their eyes will open. No, no, didn't work. It was horrible. And, um, and so when you leave, you have half the country hating you. I mean, the, the, the week before I started at Fox, I had come from CNN. Right. I was, I was voted that poll they do every year. I was the third or fourth most admired man in the world. Okay. I, how I ever got on that list is, I mean, it shows you how horribly misguided America is, but I was tied between the Pope and Nelson Mandela. A year later, half the country despised me. You can't have that kind of swing without it hitting you in the face saying, which are you? And and it's what we're going through now with the country. It's what I, it's what I, just in the last couple of years discovered. I love Winston Churchill, but I have only read Winston Churchill from a Western perspective. Read about Western, uh, read about Winston Churchill from an Indian's point of view. Mm. He's a monster. Is this an empathetic side of you? I think that's what I was asking for when I said mercy. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I've been I've been blessed lately, um, but it's so hard to do it. I mean, here we are in this. This is a sixteen thousand square foot black box. Mm-hmm. I don't see anybody. I'm just talking into this. I'm just talking to my friends, and so sometimes you forget um, that it's spilling out into people's houses and cars and every place else. Um, and, and I've been blessed and I've been working hard on, you don't know what is going on in people's lives. I was very, very angry at my audience with this Trump thing. And I've always said, I love my audience. I love my audience. And I do. And then when Trump happened, I couldn't understand it because it seemed to me a violation of everything that we had talked about, decency and respect and all this. A moral code. A moral code. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until about a year after the election that the finger came back and started pointing to me because I truly wanted to understand what happened to my friends that I love so much and then it hit me you arrogant arrogant guy what are you talking about you said you've loved your audience did you ever once say to them what i would say to my brother or my sister or my wife if she started acting erratically i would say honey what's happening this isn't like you what's happening in your life Okay, mm-hmm. that's what you say to somebody who you love, not what are you stupid? Then they get defensive. Correct. Mm-hmm. And that's what all of society is doing. We, we are missing the empathy for each other. We're all afraid of many of the same things, but we're all also experiencing pain in many different ways. Um, and we're not taking the time to see each other for the people we know we are. Right. How 
how I, I see you have a make America great again hat in the <laughs> studio. Yeah. And how has your faith really influenced your political purview? 100%. 100%. Um, because we, we all claim, and I include myself in this, we all claim to be Christian, but are we really living it? Um, that seems like it's really convicted you. Yeah. It's all that matters. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, an average guy with an... Uh, an extraordinary platform. Um, But I am trying to find the answers and trying to be a better person, just like everybody else is. My mistakes just happen to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, But you own those mistakes. I try to. I mean, it was, uh, I, I, I learned that in my first year of talk radio, I, I was against, Terry Schiavo, and I wanted them to unplug Terry Schiavo. I really hadn't even done my homework on it. I just thought, oh, yeah, well, that's no lie. And somebody called me on the air. It was a Friday. And they said, Glenn, would you just think about this one thing? Do you believe that food and water is extraordinary lengths? I thought about it all weekend long, and I thought, no, that's, that's not... It's not extraordinary to feed somebody or water. And I came in that Monday and I said to my producers, I said, we have got to reverse myself. And um, they said, God, God, no, just don't ever talk about it again. And I said, no, I was wrong. And I felt really badly about it. Mm-hmm. And um, I went on the air and the opposite of what all the, you know, experts would tell you happened. People went, wow, I don't hear that very often. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and, and I found if you just lead with your mistakes, except in a highly partisan (laughs) country, it generally, people will respect that. Mm -hmm. I think there's true power in being vulnerable too. Yeah. Um, I just want to ask you, if you try to imagine your life in the absence of your faith, what does that life look like? I'd be dead. I'd be dead. Um, through Tanya, God saved me. Um, and, uh, he saves me all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, his, uh, his, um, his scriptures have talked me off a ledge so many times of, I'm, I'm, I, I, I overthink everything and I overanalyze me. I mean, I, I, when I was down in the fetal position, um, I asked God for one thing. Uh, I, I wanted, I wanted my name back. I, I no, I could say, no, no, really, this is what's happening. And nobody would believe me because I had lied to them about everything in my life. And I realized then I lost everything 
But the only thing that mattered, besides my children, the only thing that mattered was my credibility, my name. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I remember down on the floor and praying so hard and said, Lord, that's all I want restored. I, I, I will be true and faithful with everything in me. Just if I could have one thing back in your time, I just want my name back. And that's probably been the hardest thing is I've tried so hard to be good. I see the mistakes and, and I see no matter how hard I tried, mm-hmm. my name is gone again in, in some circles. And that, that bothers me deeply. Mm-hmm. But doesn't, isn't the ultimate authority, it's not people. Yeah, yeah. But living with that is hard. It is. I mean, I'm, I struggle still every day. I struggle. How do, you, how do you deal with those struggles? How do you make sure you stay on the path? Uh, two things. Um, my wife. She is not impressed by me. She is not. She keeps you grounded, doesn't she? Oh, yeah. I got some big award one time, and she was like, all right, pipe down. Just go get it. You know, (laughs) and she did it in a loving way, but she's she's not impressed with fame, with wealth. She's just, she wants none of that. And that has helped me a great deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And the scriptures. I mean, that's, that's it. What does it mean to be a Mormon? When you look at the doctrine, what are the bedrock principles of, of being a Mormon? How do you get to heaven? Well, I mean, without getting into too deep of doctrine, right. um, we believe there are the sun, the moon, the stars. So there are three levels of glory, if you will. Okay. okay? And everybody, Three levels of eternal glory? Yes. Okay. So everybody can be like the stars. <laughs> Okay, you can be there, but you're a long way from God. And everybody is kind of there. And um, you strive for the sun. You Mm -hmm. strive to be there with the Lord. Um, And it's still glorious. You know, no matter what level you're in, it's still glorious. But you don't want to spend all eternity, you know, so far away from the Lord. Um uh, in service. I mean, where it's continual service and continual growth and, um, eternity freaks me out a little bit. I'll just be honest. But then again, we're seeing through a glass dimly. Yes. Then we'll see face to face. I will tell you, um, my marriage was different because of eternity. Um, Tanya and I got married civilly first, um, because we get married in temples and you have to be temple worthy and part of it is you have to be a member for at least a year. So you're deep in the, the scriptures and you understand the Old Testament and what a temple means and everything else. And uh, and then you have to live a certain lifestyle. And, you know, you have to be able to answer. I think there's 12 questions. Are you honest in all of your business dealings? You know, or, you know those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Do you live the Ten Commandments? Um, and... Uh, so we got married that first year. Then the next year we got married in the temple for time and all eternity. 
And so you're going to be together in eternity forever. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we, oh, we all kind of know it. I mean, mm-hmm. we all say, Oh, grandma and grandpa are back together. And yet any doctrine that says you're together is poo pooed. What if you, what if you've been married twice? Um, that's for the Lord to work out. <laughs> that's for the Lord to work out. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. So when you go take your wedding vows till death, do you part? That's rookie stuff. When you are sealed to each other for time and all eternity, it took us by surprise because we, we about a week after both of us came to each other without talking about it. And we said, okay, if we're really in this forever, there's some things we need to talk about. (laughs) And your relationship deepens. It gets so deep. And, and you start to think about things eternally. Uh, No caffeine, no alcohol. No, no alcohol, no caffeine. Caffeine is actually not one of them. Um, Coffee. I don't know why. But no tobacco, okay. uh, no coffee. Um, people interpret that as caffeine, and it can be interpreted that way. The, it's called the word of wisdom. And basically it is eat everything in moderation. Do everything in moderation. Um, so, um, uh, And don't put anything in your body that unless it's prescribed – by a doctor, don't put anything into your body that you become reliant on. So like I drink caffeine, I don't have a problem with caffeine. It does nothing to me. How do you get your caffeine? Coke. Okay. Shouldn't. And not because of the Mormon mm-hmm. thing, just because it's, you know, not good for me, but um, uh, don't put anything in your body that if you are somebody who's like, I cannot start my day without caffeine. You're reliant on that. It's, it's an addiction. Correct. And so it, it really is a thing about don't become addicted to anything. Don't become addicted to food, to alcohol, to sex, to anything. Moderation in all things. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny because it's, uh, it's such a maligned religion. And I know because I was one of the people who maligned it. Um, such a maligned religion and, and nobody really knows. Nobody has any idea. They don't even want to ask about it. Um, we have a lot of preconceived notions, correct? but as your friend said, we've never set foot in a service. Glenn, I just want to say thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. A big thanks to Glenn Beck and his team for hosting us. And thank you for listening to this week's edition of Journeys of Faith. Make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. And don't forget to rate and review us. It means a whole lot. And a big thanks to the team here at ABC Radio. Susie Liu, Mike Dubusky, Louis Millman, Brianna Montalvo, Josh Cohan, and Andrew Kaup. I'm Paula Ferris, and I'll talk to you next week on Journeys of Faith. <laughs>